Throughout the month of December, my family reads through a particular book which uses scripture to recount the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we read, I'm, I'm always struck by one particular line in this book. It's, it quotes really the, the angel Gabriel from Luke chapter 1, verse 37, where the angel Gabriel declares to Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. Think about that declaration for just a moment. Nothing will be impossible with God. I wonder if you believe that. Do, do you believe that nothing, absolutely nothing, is impossible with God? Verse 17, we, we read for Scripture. So for example, in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, we, we read, Ah, Lord God, it is thou who hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power. Nothing is too difficult for thee. You know, Jesus himself actually said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 20, Jesus, all things? I'm, I'm almost certain that there are things in your life, situations that you face, that you thought were or think are impossible. Perhaps you think it, it hasn't happened yet, and so it never will. You know, we could, we could actually come up with some kind of trite examples of people doing the impossible such as a 16 seed defeating a number one seed in the men's NCAA basketball tournament. Right until March 16, 2018, such a feat seemed impossible. After all, the record of 16 seeds against one seeds for that day, until that day, was zero to 135. But my sense is there are things far more important than a basketball game that seem impossible to us. Sometimes we think reconciliation between family members is impossible. Uh, I remember thinking reconciliation between two neighbors on my street was impossible. Uh, perhaps you think a soft heart from a spouse or a child or a loved one is impossible. Perhaps you think it's impossible to overcome the feeling of loneliness. Perhaps you think it's impossible to conquer anxiety or depression or anger. Perhaps you think someone's conversion to Christianity, to the Lord Jesus Christ, is impossible. There are many things that we think are impossible. But when we think of such things, we forget one important word. Actually, we forget one important being, God. The scriptures don't tell us all things are possible. No, they uniformly tell us with God with God, all things are possible. Beloved, this is what the Word of God teaches us today. Our God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is almighty. As a children's song once put it, He is the only one who can do anything that He wants to do. God can do all of His holy will. It's my when you think of those things in your life which seem impossible, but rather that your faith would be sustained by God's power and God's promises. There is reason that we have hope, and that is because our God is not only all good, but he's also all powerful. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the pew, I believe you can find the passage beginning on page 11. When we say Genesis 17, we're talking about that larger chapter number there in the text. And when I mention verses throughout the sermon, that'll be the smaller numbers that I'm mentioning there. 
And let's remember what we've learned in Genesis so far as we begin to dive into this text. In the opening chapters of the Bible, we learn that God made everything and everyone for his own glory. He made man and woman. He set them in a beautiful garden in a wonderful relationship with him. He gave them life and labor and love there in that garden. And it was glorious, but sadly they threw it all away. They rebelled against God's good command. He told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they decided that they were going to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They threw off God's rule when they did that. They disobeyed God's command. And so they were sent out of God's garden for their rebellion. And even in the face of that rebellion, God promised redemption. He promised a reconciliation between God and man. So in Genesis 3.15, just after the fall, God promised that one day he would send the seed of a woman, which is to say a son. And we know from the rest of the story of the Bible, that would be his son. He would send his son, who would crush the head of the serpent and thus defeat sin and Satan and death. And this promised son would one day bring God's people back into God's place in a right relationship with God and live under God's rule and blessing. But the rest of the book of Genesis is revealing how God is working these promises out. The focus of the fulfillment of God's promise of sending a son has narrowed down to this man named Abram. We met him uh, recently in our study, and we saw, especially in chapter 12, that God gave Abram precious promises. God would give him a people and a place. He would give him sons. He would give Abram lineage, and they would have land. But Abram had to follow God, trust God, and go to a place that he did not No, And along the way, as we can expect in our lives, as God leaves us along the way, Abram encounters difficulty. He went down to Egypt for help rather than trusting in God. God rescued him out of that danger and throwing his promises in 14. Despite difficulty, we see a a bright light kind of for Abram. He trusted the Lord and he remained loyal to the Lord. As time wore on, though, Abram and Sarai grew impatient with the promises of God. Abram questioned God back in chapter 15 of Genesis. And as we saw last week in chapter 16, Abram and Sarai, they tried to force the fulfillment of God's promises by taking Hagar, Sarah's maidservant, and trying to produce that promised son. Their sin, their rebellion against God's design, did not leave them satisfied. And the Lord revealed that that son that came from that union between Abram and Hagar, that Ishmael, He was not the promised son. So in the course of the narrative, as we come to chapter 17, we're still left waiting for God to act, to send that promised son. And from a human perspective, the promises of God are kind of entering impossible territory. Chapter 16 closed by noting that Abram was 86. And look at how chapter 17 opens. Read those first two verses there. Genesis 17, 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me greatly. I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Really, Lord? I mean, you're going to give a child to a man who's 99 years old? No. He'll give a child to Abram when he's 100 years old. This chapter, Genesis 17, is going to remind us that faith in the impossible promises of God Almighty shows itself in obedience. Abram is going to believe God, trust him, and obey God's commands in this chapter. We're going to study this chapter in three sections under three headings. First, believe the promises of God Almighty. In Genesis 17, verses 1 to 14, we're going to see God renew his covenant promises to Abraham, Abram. And he gives him 
a covenant sign to go along with them. That's this relationship. I'm going to signify that we're in this relationship together through a covenant sign, sign of circumcision. We'll look at it in a bit. Second, we're going to learn from this chapter that we are to bow to the power of God Almighty. In Genesis 17, verses 15 to 21, God, he reassures Abram that it will be Sarai, not Hagar, who will bear the son of promise. And then third, the final section, we'll learn that we should be diligent to obey God Almighty. In Genesis 17, verses 22 to 27, Abram responds to the impossible promises of God in faith-filled obedience. Faith believes that God is able to do what he promises to do, and it lives in light of it. Believe the promises of God Almighty, bow to the power of God Almighty, be diligent to obey God Almighty. Here's the sermon in a sentence. Show your trust in the impossible promises of God Almighty through faith-filled obedience. And just to give you a hint kind of of where we're going throughout the course of this study, here's why you should show your trust in the impossible promises of God Almighty through faith-filled obedience. Because he's kept his promise. Right? He has sent his son of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe there's an outline there in your bulletin that I hope will help you follow along in more detail. But let's begin with our first point. Believe the promises of God Almighty. Follow along as I read Genesis 17, verses 1 to 14 now. Beginning there in verse 1 again. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of be circumcised. Me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or, brought or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Well, friends, in these verses, God reports his covenant purposes, verses 1 and 2. Abram reacts by falling on his face there in verse 3. And then God renames Abram, and we're going to see later Sarai, actually, there in verses 4 and 5. 
And this is followed by an additional, additional revelation concerning the covenant there in verses 6 to 14. Now, how Moses, and Moses is the author of Genesis, how Moses sets up God's report is significant. Moses alerts us to the fact that a great deal of time has actually passed from when God made the initial promise to Abram in Genesis 12. The initial promise of a child, Abram was 86, 85 years old. And the events of the last chapter occurred at the time when Abram was 86. Abram is now, as we see here, 99. From a human perspective, the promises of God to the patriarch and his princess are growing dim as they are growing old. They grow more and more impossible every day. And Abram must know it. He, he's already asked God, can I really trust you to fulfill these promises? And when it seemed like all hope was lost, he and Sarah, remember, they tried to force fulfillment by having Ishmael through Hagar. And that was not the way. So here, is it any surprise that God meets Abram where he is, and tells him who he is. Did you see that? Yahweh is God Almighty. He is not some dainty deity. He is God Almighty. There's nothing that constrains him or restrains him. He will accomplish his purposes. He will fulfill his promises. Our God, the God of Abram, is the God who can do anything that he wants to do. Yes, he can do all his holy will. And as God makes himself known to Abram, he once again communicates that because of who he is, he can guarantee the fulfillment of his promises. Doubts Abram might have the power to fulfill his promises. Whatever lingering doubts Abram might have, he can believe and trust the promises of God Almighty. God, you can trust him too. And what he tells Abram to do, to walk before him and be blameless, is actually what you should seek to do by God's grace. You're going to sin and fail and fall short of this goal. But this actually ought to be every Christian's aspiration. There was one and only one who ever perfectly walked before God and was blameless. That is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus did that for us and for our salvation. And it is because of what Jesus has done for us that we should seek to live for him and live like him. That's what this call is upon Abram. It is a declaration and a demand. It is the Lord saying to, to him, Abram, in light of how I have dealt graciously with you, declaration, live according to my righteousness, demand. This is an ethical calling in light of a gracious calling. I don't know if you remember, but this ethical calling from the Lord is actually how Enoch and Noah lived before God earlier, as we saw in the book of Genesis. So in Genesis 5.24, it tells us that Enoch walked with God. And Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 tells us that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Here God is calling Abram to live like those two men, and really, actually, like Job lived as well. So the book of Job actually opens like this. Job 1.1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. You know, we too should seek to walk before God and be blameless. We should fear God, love Him, and trust Him because He's been gracious to us in Jesus Christ. And we should turn away from evil in the strength of His Spirit. We should say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And when we fail, because, beloved, we know we will fail. That's why we have a prayer of confession every Sunday because we, we failed this week. When we fail, we go to the Lord for forgiveness. And we remember that we have it in Jesus Christ. He's offered it to us, and we receive it gladly in his name. 
God's ethical demand of Abram is not, you be perfect so that I can fulfill my promises. That would make the creator contingent upon the creature. That would mean that God's power to act actually would be limited by somebody else. And in fact, God has already called and free. No God is God Almighty. And in fact, God has already called Abram. Genesis 12, he's already committed himself to these covenant promises in Genesis 15, 15 verse 6. So Abram already believed upon God and been counted as righteous. Genesis 15 verse 6. So Abram already enjoys salvation. And now God is calling Abram to walk in a sanctified way. To commit himself actually afresh to Yahweh. The covenant remains the same. It has the same promises of land and lineage, of people and place, of dominion and dynasty. But now, God is calling Abram to express that he actually participates in that covenant, body and soul. After many years of waiting, Abram is clearly grateful to hear God's report that he's not forsaken his covenant commitment. And that's why we have Abram's reaction there in verse 3 where he falls on his face. Do you see that there? He falls on his face. Now, Moses is not telling us that Abram tripped and fell. This is a deliberate action of bowing before God in worship. He's bowing in awe before God. He, he worships the Lord. Abram has sinned again and again. He's gone down to Egypt. He's had that sinful relationship with Hagar. And still, God's purposes and love toward him have not changed. And should we not do the same? Should our hearts not bow in awe before God when we are reminded week after week on the Lord's Day that his love for us has not changed? It remains the same. Should not our hearts bow in awe before God month by month when we are reminded in the Lord's Supper that he will come and take us to himself as he promised? Should you not bow in awe before God that after years of following him and yet sinning against him, that his love for you remains the same? For he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Oh, indeed, our hearts should bow before him. And Abram, as we can see there in verse 4, you see what he gets? He gets a new name. Now he will be called Abraham, which literally means father of a multitude. Now note carefully that Abram will be the father of a multitude of nations in the plural. You see that there in the plural? God's purposes in Abraham are clearly going to extend beyond Abraham's physical descendants, the children of Israel, Hebrews. God's aim is not just to make Israel into a great nation but that the peoples of the earth would have faith in God Almighty. Abraham, you want to be a child of Abraham? Almighty. That's what really makes you actually a child of Abraham. You want to be a child of Abraham? You have faith like Abraham. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3, 7 and Romans 4, 17. Now, giving a name is a big deal. It's a big deal in our lives. It's a big deal in the Bible. You know, I've um, sometimes done hospital visits to couples who've just had a baby some 24, 48 hours after they've had uh, this child. And the parents are sometimes still wrestling with what they're going to, what name they're going to give this child. Well, giving this name to Abraham is a big deal. Uh, naming in the Bible often signals dominion or belonging. So earlier in Genesis, right, Adam, he names Eve. She belongs to him as his beloved bride. Well, God renamed Abraham, showing that Abram belongs to him. Then, as we learn in Genesis 16, verses 6, sorry, 17, verses 6 to 14, God, he, he wants Abraham and his descendants to take on a sign to show that they further belong to him. Circumcision is introduced in connection 
with the additional revelation that God gives to Abraham concerning this covenant he's made. The promises of Genesis 12, and I wonder if you caught it, of lineage and land are repeated in verses 6 to 8, but a new detail is actually dropped in. I wonder if you caught it. Do you see it at the end of verse 6? This is a new detail. And kings shall come from you. The people of Abraham and the people of Israel standing on Mount Sinai receiving this book are learning that the people of God won't just be a nation, but that they'll have kings and be a kingdom. And this will be fulfilled in the establishment of the kingdom, especially in David's day. But ultimately, it looks forward to the day when the Lord Jesus Christ arrives. He's the son of Abraham and the son of David, as Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 tells us. That's why Paul tells us in Galatians uh, that, that Jesus is Abram's offspring in the singular. He's the one who's promised. He's the king, the final king to come. Is this not astounding? Not only do the promise of God appear to be growing in possibility as time goes on, and Abraham and Sarah get older, but they're growing in grandeur as well. Kings will come from these people. And don't lose sight of all of the goal of this growth. Do you see those words at the end of verse 7? What is God's goal in all of this? To be God to you and to your offspring after you. God's goal in all of this is to bind himself to his people. The Lord says it again there at the end of verse 8, and I will be their God. God's goal in all of this is to communicate to Abraham and to his offspring, all those who trust in him down through the ages, that they are his beloved. They are beloved by him. They are blessed by him. They belong to him. Can there be any more glorious gift than this? Than to be brought into covenant relationship with God, to be beloved by him, blessed by him, belong to him. For him to claim you as his own. Do you claim him as your own? In verse 9, Abraham and all of his offspring after him are instructed to keep this covenant. God is all in on them. Are they all in on him? And that word keep there in verse 9 is actually the same word used in Genesis 2 when Adam was placed in the garden to work and to keep it. Adam are to keep. Well, what is this covenant? Abraham is about to be given a covenant duty that he and those after him are to keep. Well, what is this covenant duty? Well, the covenant duty is to apply the covenant sign of circumcision. Every male in his household, whether son or servant, or son of a servant, is to be circumcised. For those yet to be born, they are to be circumcised on the eighth day. Abraham and each member of his household are to bear in their bodies the sign that they belong to God. Not only that, but the location of the sign reminds Abraham and his offspring after him that the promised seed of the woman, promised back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that promised seed who will defeat sin and Satan and death will come through them. The sons of Abraham will one day bear the Son of God. This sign would mark Abraham and his descendants as belonging to God. But this outward circumcision also pointed to the need of the circumcision of the heart. Their bodies are marked as belonging to the Lord, but we are more than bodies. We are bodies and souls. And so their bodies are marked as belonging to the Lord, but do their hearts belong to the Lord? Before we even get out of the Pentateuch, Moses starts communicating to Israel the need for circumcised hearts. So in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, we read, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. And then in Deuteronomy 30, 
Moses says something similar again, 30 verse 6. Moses promises the people of Israel that one day the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel pick up these pleas and promises. They further our expectations that one day God's covenant people will not just be those who belong to him outwardly, but inwardly too. In other words, the circumcision of the heart is synonymous with regeneration, being made alive to God. It's a supernatural work of God, according to Moses in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Are those, I wonder if you picked in the service from Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Christians are those, I wonder if you picked this up, who have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, human hands weren't involved in a Christian's circumcision. It was God's hands, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, some misstep here, especially our friends who baptize babies, or more accurately, get babies wet. Now, friends, you're in a Baptist church this morning, so you get the Baptist take on this, okay? So you shouldn't be surprised by any of this. In the New Covenant, Paul connects baptism to the covenant not by means of physical descent and birth, but by circumcision of the heart. In the Old Covenant, you entered the covenant community, as we're seeing here, through physical birth. And because of that physical birth, you were marked with the sign of circumcision. In the New Covenant, you enter the covenant community through the new birth, of the circumcision of the heart. And only after you have been circumcised, in heart, by the circumcision made without hands, in Colossians 2.11, you are to be marked with a sign of the new covenant, baptism. And do you know what else happens in baptism? We are given a new name. Baptism is actually something of a covenant renaming ceremony. Just like Abram received a new name, Abraham, so we receive a new name. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in the Great Commission? When he told them to go and baptize other disciples, what did he tell them to do? He told them to baptize disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So in baptism, we are given the name of the triune God. It signifies that we are his beloved, that we belong to him, that we believe his covenant promises in Jesus Christ. We, we make an outward profession of what has occurred inwardly in us. No longer do we belong to the world. No longer are we children of the devil and members of his household. But now we are children of the living God, adopted into his family through faith in his son and given his name. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant, whereas circumcision was a sign of the old covenant. In baptism, we declare that we belong to the king who came from Abram's line. The promises of God just like saved us. That his spirit circumcised us in heart and that we believe the promises of God just like Abraham did. Now, startlingly, this section ends with a warning for those who refuse to circumcise their offspring. There will be some, verse 14, who failed to circumcise their offspring or to be circumcised themselves. And such a stance was actually a rejection of God and his covenant promises. The promises were guaranteed to the people of God as a whole, but they needed to be individually appropriated and believed. And the same is true for you. Just because your family went to church or goes to church does not mean you are saved. Just because your father or your mother believed does not mean that you 
are a Christian. Just because you gather here or with another church regularly does not mean that you are a member of God's new covenant community. Just because you join this church or join another church does not mean you are a member of the new covenant people of God. You must believe the promises of God in Jesus Christ. God's revelation of the covenant promises to Abraham signified in circumcision pointed to the eternal promises in Jesus Christ. Those who want their faith in him in him and be marked by his sign as a public profession of their faith in him. You must believe that he has done the impossible, that God Almighty has come down to earth to save sinners and indeed to save you. Today, a welcome in Jesus Christ is being offered to you. Don't reject that offer, but embrace salvation in God's promised son today. Believe the promises of God Almighty. He has promised that all who come to him, he will not cast out but call his own. He has promised that all who turn from their sins and believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he lived, died, and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of their sins will be saved. Friend, believe. Believe and bow to the power of God. That's what we turn to consider in our second point. Bow to the power of God Almighty. Follow along as I read Genesis 17, verses 15 to 21. Begin there in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, her. Then kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Now these verses, this stretch of verses, it marks, I think, the rising tension and really the climax of this passage. What will God Almighty do? Will he do the impossible? Will he display his power by bringing a child to a barren womb? You know, these verses, they actually share kind of a, a kinship with the one's reaction. And additional verses 1 to 14, there's a report, a renaming, a reaction, and additional revelation concerning God's purposes. The order, though, is uh, slightly different. And I think the reorganizing of the order actually emphasizes God's power. Instead of beginning with the report, like we began in the previous section, God begins with the renaming of Sarai. Her name will not be Sarah, but now Sarah. Both names are rooted in the idea of her being a princess. Uh, it's, it's possible, it seems, that Sarah was born from a noble family line. Maybe that's why she received the name uh, Sarai, being kind of a, a princess, well-esteemed. But with this renaming, Sarah is being claimed as belonging to Yahweh's family. Right? She's his daughter. She's the princess of the king of the universe. And this daughter and princess, as we learn, will be the one through whom kings will come. This renaming signals to Abraham 
even before God reveals what he's going to do through Sarah, that she, not Hagar, but she is God's chosen servant for the bearing of the promised son. And of course, that is the report that we get there in verse 16. And so that Abraham is not left in doubt, God twice tells him that he will bless her. He tells Abram that the promised son will come through her. And then God repeats the report he gave to Abraham. What was true of Abraham will actually also be true of Sarah. Just like I told you, nations would come from you, Abe, so they'll come from her. Just like I told you, kings will come from you, Abe, so they will king. Kings will come from her. And God zeroes Abraham's focus in on her five times in this single, single verse we get he or she. In these, these verses we get he or she, which is what makes Abraham's reaction all the more astounding, right? I mean, God has graciously condescended to communicate to Abraham what he was going to do in a way that he could understand. But then in verses 17 and 18, Abraham not only falls on his face like he did before, but he laughs in God's face and then offers a different suggestion to God's face. Uh, this is a human reaction, isn't it? I mean, it's one of the things that I, I love about the Bible. Uh, the Bible is gritty and real. It doesn't hide the sins and the stumblings and the, the difficulty of our heroes of the faith. We can sympathize with Abraham here, I think. I mean, have you ever met a man who fathered a child at 100 years old? What about a woman who's nine? Neither have I. And who's had a, a child at 90 years old? Neither have I. And I don't think Abraham has either. I think it's a laughable idea to him. That's why his son's name is going to be Isaac, which means he laughed so hard that he hard for Abraham to believe. It's impossible from his vantage point. So hard that he suggests that God consider Ishmael to be the son of promise. The point of difficulty for Abraham is not only the passage of time, but also the fact that he and Sarai, from a human perspective, are past the point of opportunity, right? It's impossible from Abraham's point of view. But God rebuffs Abraham's suggestion. He tells him no. That's almost the most offensive word for a human to hear, I think. No. What, what, do you, what do you mean, no? When we encounter God, we are forced to remember that he is in charge. No, not Hagar. And not Hagar's son. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. Don't you love it that God is kind of giving orders here? And that's just how it should be. He, he's, he's in charge. Shouldn't the all-loving Almighty God be in charge of all things and of all of us. God's purposes and promises are going to run through Sarah and Isaac. The Lord is emphatic on this point there in verse 19. You see it? I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And then there in verse 21, you see it? But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. God's purposes and God's promises, as I said, are going to run through Sarah and Isaac. But he will not forget Ishmael and Hagar. He will bless them too. But the blessings of salvation run through Sarah and Isaac. That's God's plan. That's where Abram's, Abraham's attention needs to be focused, and focused rather quickly, because for the first time since the promise of a child in Genesis 12, God finally gives a time frame. We've been waiting and wondering, when will this son come? When will we see, when, the, when will the fullness of time for the coming of this son come? And the son's going to come in about a year's time. Why? Why do you wonder Abraham offered Ishmael to God? 
Why did God rebuff that offer? What, what Abraham was forgetting, I, th- I think only momentarily, but still momentarily forgetting, is that the promises of God always come by the power as the son of promise. Abraham could always say, I did that, right? But if God brought a promised son to a man who is 100 years old and to a barren woman of 90, then it was God's idea. God made him. And beloved, both Abraham and we ought into this world. I mean, do you remember when Jesus said in his ministry, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus said that in John chapter 8, verse 56. Yes, it was initially hard for Abraham to believe this promise about Isaac and to believe that God's power could accomplish it. But he did believe. He believed not only that Isaac would come, but that Jesus would come. He believed that the promised son of salvation would come through his sons one day. And what do we read in the New Testament? When we come to texts that speak of Jesus' arrival, the son of salvation, the offspring of Abraham, as Paul calls him in Galatians 3.16, what do they say? Do they say that Jesus came by the power of man? No. Uh, Do they say that the coming of Jesus was the great idea of Mary and Joseph? No. Mary asked a question as equally incredulous as Abraham, right? When God promised her a son, she asked, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Only, only by the power of God, Mary. Only by the power of God would Jesus come. Only by the power of God would Isaac come. You know, when the, when the New Testament speaks of the coming of Jesus, it confirms that the Son of God came by the power of God. So we read in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In John 1.14, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 3.16, a great Christmas text, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In Matthew 1.18, we read this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she the promises of God, child from the Holy Spirit. Beloved, the promises of God come by the power of God all for the praise of God. The promises of God come by the power of God all for the praise of God. So bow to the power of God Almighty in joyful awe and praise and glorious wonder. But we ought not stop there. We should learn from Abraham and his response. Abraham not only believes God, he not only bows, but he is diligent to obey God Almighty. This is our third point. Our third point. Be diligent to obey God Almighty. Follow along as I read Genesis 17 Verses 22 to 27. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. As God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, that very day, Abraham 
when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. These verses, they report the Lord's departure. They remind us of Abraham's age, and they recount the details of Abraham's doing. This is what faith looks like when it believes the impossible promises of God Almighty. It moves into action and obeys God's command. What does Abraham do? He does what God said to do. Moses, he introduced us to the arrival of the Lord in verse 1 of the chapter. But now, the Lord has said all that needs to be said, and so he leaves. And I appreciate the language of God going up at the end of verse 22. Do you see that there? It reminds us that God has graciously condescended to us, to Abraham, while at the same time comforting us in the truth that he rules from his throne above. He is in control, and his plan for the promised son has been set into motion. Still, the bulk of these verses actually underscore Abraham's age and his diligent obedience. Five times the word circumcised is used, verses 23 to 27. And no, no one, uh, no single male was left out. Time and again, we read phrases like, all those born in his house, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and all the men of his house. Abraham was circumcised, his son Ishmael was circumcised, and his servants were circumcised, and the sons of his servants were circumcised. Abraham believed, and so he obeyed, and he did not delay. We're told toward the end of verse 23 that he circumcised everyone in his household that very day. Now, do you see it then again, once more in verse 26, that very day? Abraham does not delay his obedience. He diligently carries it out. The best time to obey is right away. Beloved, when there is a command of God that you ought to obey, obey right away. Think of what all this would have meant to the audience who was first receiving the book of Genesis. Uh, they would have taken their cues, or they should have taken their cues from Abraham and believe the impossible promises of God. That he would give them a land. And one day a king. Remember who they are. They've come from Exodus. They're entering into a covenant sign. And they're preparing to enter into the promised land. They're entering into a covenant actually with God at Mount Sinai. A covenant that they would need to diligently keep. Or else forfeit the gift of land. What should they do? Like Abraham, they should believe God. And be diligent to obey all that God commanded them. Would they? No. That's why the son of Abraham, the son of salvation, Jesus Christ would need to come. Right? What happened with Israel was what happened with Adam and Eve. They rebelled against God and were exiled from the garden. Israel was brought into the land, given God's law, given God's rule, given God's blessing. And what did they do? They rejected it, so they were exiled from the land. Adam and Eve's history, Israel's history, shows us that we need this son of Abraham, this king who would come. And Jesus Christ has come. This is where we have an even more sure word than Abraham. God has kept his promises. Abraham was looking forward to God's promises, but we look back on them as fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The son has come. He was circumcised. The gospels tell us that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day in obedience to the law. He perfectly and personally and per Jesus had to die but as blameless and he laid down his life on the cross for us Jesus had to die because we did not and could not keep God's law 
we have not and could not keep the covenant. Remember what would happen to people who didn't keep this covenant here in Genesis 17? They would be cut off because they broke God's covenant. Well, that's what we've done in our sin. We have broken God's covenant. We deserve to be cut off from God's presence. We deserve to be cut off from the people of God. But Jesus, he undertook the curses of the covenant for us and for our salvation. God's impossible promises were fulfilled to Abraham, not only in Isaac, but in a much greater way, in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God sent his son to live for us, to walk before him and to be blameless. He sent his son to die for us, as that sacrifice who would bear the covenant curses for us, and to be raised from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins. And because of what Jesus has done, we can be welcomed into his covenant community, his covenant family. So friends, turn from your sin. And come to Jesus, believe that Jesus is this promised son of Abraham, that king who would come to live and rescue God's people from their sin. When we come to Jesus and instructs his disciples to obey all that he commands, we obey diligently and without de- delay because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Yes, we will fail. Lord. We show our trust in God Almighty through faith-filled obedience because he's given us hating salvation. It is a matter of living out our salvation, living in light of our salvation. Obedience is not the root of salvation. It is the because he has done the impossible in Jesus Christ. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. God taking on flesh seems impossible. The dead being raised seems impossible. But beloved, this is precisely what God has done. He has done the impossible. So believe with all your heart that nothing is impossible for the Lord. Believe that relationships that you feel are so broken as to be beyond repair can be reconciled and restored in Jesus Christ. Believe that hearts can be healed. Believe that the lost can be found and sinners saved. Believe not just that he can love you, but that he does love you in Jesus Christ. Hear the words of the good Dr. Ryle. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. There is no sin too black and bad to be pardoned. There is no heart too hard and wicked to be changed. There is no no difficulty too great for a believer to overcome. Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. How did Abraham respond to God Almighty's impossible promises? He set himself to faith-filled service unto the Lord. Do you know what Mary said after the angel Gabriel told her those words? Nothing is impossible with the Lord. Do you know what she said? I am the Lord's servant. What about you? Are you the Lord's servant? Show your trust in the impossible promises of God Almighty by serving him this day and all the days of your life. He has kept his promises in Jesus Christ. He has laid his life down for all those he loves. Serve that one who served you in his death. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are who you say you are. You are God Almighty. Nothing stands in the way of you exercising your great power. And Father, we pray and ask that you would help us to believe your great power. That you'd help us to believe that you have powerfully saved sinners like us in Jesus Christ. 
Father, we pray and ask that our hearts, when they are sinking low and feeling weak, that you would cause us to turn to you and come to you and rest in your great power. Father, we pray and ask that you would answer the prayers of our hearts, uh, not just for our relief, but for your renown, so that you might be honored and glorified. Father, we pray and ask that you would remind us of all that Jesus has done for us and for our salvation. And we rest our hearts and our hopes in him now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.